Good evening. Good to see you all tonight once again. Thank you for coming out. Uh, I'm going to have a topical message tonight, and um, I'm going to start out with a question here. So I'm going to have some of the verses up on the screen, in case you didn't bring a Bible, but you can always follow along in your Bibles as well if that helps you. I'm going to lead off with a question for you to ponder. If you were stranded on a deserted island, means abandoned, not with lots of desserts, right? Uh, although that would be nice. Uh, and you could only take one book with you besides the Bible, what would it be? Okay? This could even be a luxury island. It's fine. You don't have to, I mean, it could have all the nice things in it, and you're just relaxing and enjoying yourself, and you've got a book. Which book would you bring along? Okay? And, and we'll let you have a Bible already, okay? So you don't, don't use that. Um, Personally, I would have an ESV study Bible. If I'm going to just stretch that a little bit, that would be my number one thing. I don't know what you'd bring with, with you, but if I were to answer this question, my book of choice would be the Valley of Vision. Okay? Valley of Vision. And I don't know, how many have read parts of, or the whole thing, Valley of Vision before? Raise your hand. Or at least maybe aware of what it is. Okay, a good number of you are at least aware of it, what it is or have read parts. Wonderful, wonderful book. We have it in our library. Pastors mentioned it a number of times. I think I've mentioned it a number of times. Wonderful book to bring along. And, uh, and so if you were left with nothing else but a Bible and one other book, I think the Bible would help me, obviously, in reading the Word of God, and then this would help me with my prayer. It's got absolutely gorgeous prayers uh, written, and not just gorgeous in the artistic sense, but helpful in helping you to pray. Let me just, for those of you who are here tonight who have never experienced anything from this, let me just put one of the prayers up on the screen. Here's one. It says, uh, it's called Christ-likeness. It says, Dawn returns, but without thy light within, no outward light can profit. Give me the saving lamp of thy spirit that I may see thee, the God of my salvation, the delight of my soul, rejoicing over me in love. I commend my heart to thy watchful care, for I know its treachery and power. Guard its every portal from the wily enemy. Give me quick discernment of his deadly arts. Help me to recognize his bold disguise, excuse me, as an angel of light and bid him be gone. May my words and my works allure others to the highest walks of faith and love. Cause me to be a mirror of thy grace, to show others the joy of thy service. May my lips be well-tuned symbols sounding thy praise. Let a halo of healthy I'm sorry, heavenly-mindedness, sparkle around me, and a lamp of kindness sunbeam my path. Teach me the happy art of attending to things temporal with a mind intent on things eternal. And finally, help me to walk as Jesus walked, my only Savior and perfect model, his mind, my inward guest, and his meekness, my covering. That's just gorgeous. That's a wonderful prayer. And, and oftentimes, when I don't know how to pray, I can turn to the Valley of Vision and get me jump-started, if you will. It gets me going and thinking about things that I should pray, and it has a depth that very few of us start out with. So that's why I love it. Because of its value, that's why that would be that one book. And yet, and yet, although there's, this, is, this, this book is one of my favorites, it's the one I bring with me, there is one thing about this book that has always bothered me. Like any book that's not the Bible... It's not without its faults. And my issue with this book is its general view on our ability, or rather our inability, to make God smile. Throughout the book, 
and within the many prayers contained within, one gets the sense that even as believers, no matter what we do, even at our holiest and best moments, we are, oh, I don't know how to describe it, wretched failures, perhaps? Let me give you some samplings of what I'm talking about. Here's a prayer called Conflict. I'm a vile monster that defies thy law, casts off thy yoke, defiles my nature, and spreads misery. Okay? And this next one, continual repentance. It says, in my Christian walk, I'm still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity. My receiving of the Spirit is tinctured with selfishness. I need to repent of my repentance. And then finally, this is perhaps the most pointed example of what I'm talking about. This is from the prayer's paradoxes, again, contained in the same book. Under the conviction of the Spirit, I learned that the more I do, the worse I am. And the more I know, the less I know. The more holiness I have, the more sinful I am. Again, from the prayer, paradoxes. So those are some samples of words contained in some of these prayers. Now again, I love this book. I wouldn't have told you from the start that this is my one book out of thousands of millions or whatever there is in the world. This is the one book I would bring with me to that deserted island. But having read some of these prayers, I was left wondering, are believers really that incapable of pleasing God? And the key word is believers, okay? Because in regards to unbelievers, the Bible says this, Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So we know what the Bible says about unbelievers. It says very clearly it is impossible to please God. But my question is, is the same true of a believer? Should we feel, almost as if some of the Valley of Vision prayers want us to feel, that even our best attempts at offering a life of holy living to God, governed by faith, are tainted with sin, immersed in selfish motives, and really just a pitiful facade for the true evil that lies within my own heart? Here are some of the questions that it raised for me. Is my default posture before God, even as a believer, to always be one of inadequacy and cowering before God who is constantly displeased with us? Am I forever to feel that as long as I live, I will never get a a step closer to holiness, knowing that for as many times as I try to live rightly, I only uncover more sin underneath? And finally, am I doomed, even as a believer, just to think of myself daily as a failure no matter what I do? And to these questions, I would say no. No. Like any book, like I said, that's not the Bible, I think the Valley of Vision might take this a little bit too far. And I'm starting, this is kind of unfair for you, because I'm starting with my premise before I've proved it, okay? So some of you may agree with me, some of you may not, and I haven't had the chance to prove it to you. So here is what we're going to talk about tonight. The Bible, in contrast to this, talks about a concept called blameless, blameless. And I want to do a word study with you tonight as to what that means. And in fact, that's my title for this evening. What is this word blameless in the Bible? Specifically, mostly in the Old Testament. What does it mean? How do we balance that with 
what we know about our own sinfulness. And again, I'm not denying our own sinfulness. The Bible has plenty to say just about how sinful we are. But the real question I want to get back to is what I started with. Are we really that incapable of making God smile? And I'm using that, that phrase intentionally because I want it to, to, to stick with you. Are we, in, are we really incapable of making God happy? Or are we to continually think over and over that even on our best days, God's still looking down on us going, nope, not good enough. I can see that even your best worship is tainted with sin. Not quite pleased with that. And it matters. This matters because of all people, we just finished celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And Martin Luther was greatly troubled by a distorted view of who God was. He saw a statue of Jesus Christ that he walked by over and over again on his way to church. And he was continually scared by it. This, this picture of Jesus with a sword in his mouth. And he had a view of God that was constantly displeased with him, constantly angry all of the time. And it made him have a distorted wrong view of God that distorted the way he felt about God. To balance all this, we have this word blameless. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to define it for you. And then we'll go into the scriptures and find specific examples of people who are called blameless, what exactly that means, and how that can give us hope that God actually can be pleased with our lives when we're living rightly. Not just any time, mind you. Not that we can just live however we want and God's fine with it all. No, I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying by this word blameless that we can be perfect either. That's a form of heresy that I'm not going to get into either. I'm not saying that we can become perfect people. But in short, can we please God? Well, here's this idea, blameless. It's a word, this is just a summary of it, and we'll get into the specifics in the texts. It's a word that can and is, under certain circumstances, be used to describe believers who are living according to God's commandments. Okay, and we'll see specific examples of that. It's a word that can and is, I'm sorry, it's a word that describes how God views those individuals, revealing their stance before his eyes. That's important. It is not a word that means or implies sinless perfection, as I've already said, but it is put forward as a status that is achievable. And indeed, it is used to describe holy individuals of the past, and it is a status that we are called to live up to as well. So, this is the message for tonight. This is the idea I'm going to be covering. And here's my key verse. If we were to have a key verse, this would be it. Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the way or in the law of the Lord. Notice something right away about that verse. This is something we are called to do. Okay, it's saying blessed are those whose way is blameless, implying the fact that this is something that can actually be achieved, something we're called to. It's a positive designation, a positive way in which God thinks of us if we are truly living a way that is worthy of this term, blameless. So here's my main idea. Whoops, I jumped past it. As believers, we're not to assume that no matter what we do, God is always frowning upon us. Quite the contrary. If we are in Christ, it is even possible to make God smile. It is actually possible for him to be pleased with how we are living. And I find that to be an incredibly freeing thought. Now, this message is going to help some of you. Maybe it's not for a certain crowd. For somebody who is not living the way they ought... Maybe there's a chance that you might need to hear a little bit more about how sinful you really are. And uh, maybe there are certain individuals here, maybe in this room, or people that you know of that need to hear that a little bit more, who don't really take their sin seriously. 
But for another type of personality, and I know there's two types of personalities out there at least, the, the kind of person who beats themselves over and over again, saying, am I good enough? Am I really saved? Is God really, does he really love me? I think this is an important message for you to hear, and we'll, we'll, we'll prove it. Again, I've started with my thesis. I'm going to go back and prove it. In Hebrew, the word for blameless is tamim, or sometimes in its shorter form, tam. Uh, you'll find both of these in the Old Testament. They're basically the same word. The ending im is just a pluralized form of that same thing. So you might say it's a more emphasized, an exaggerated version of the same thing. So tam and tamim, tamim just being the more emphatic version of that. But according to the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, or halot, as it's known in scholarly circles, this term means complete, whole, spotless, or having integrity. So it can refer to sacrificial animals, such as Ezra 12, 5, your lamb, your, your lamb shall uh, be without blemish. Or it can mean complete. It can refer to a whole, like a set of weeks, okay, like seven, a seven set of days, meaning a complete number. Or it can refer to um, moral purity, moral purity. So let's clarify what we mean by this. There's the definition, complete, whole, spotless, having integrity. Tamim, as it's used in the Old Testament, is not a term that refers to an imputed status that is given to someone. Rather, it refers to a person's way of living, i.e., their actions. And by that I mean it's not used to call somebody blameless who in fact is not. Blameless or tamim refers to a constant pattern of living in a godly way. It refers to a person's actions. And this is shown in our key verse, which we've already gone over. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. And again, you don't just have to take my word for it because I'm, I'm quoting some lexicon you've never heard of before. It says it right here. The verse defines it. Who walk in the law of the Lord. It defines blameless for us. So it clearly defines it. The second thing I want to point out is that tamim doesn't mean perfect. We've already talked about that. There are people in the Bible who are called blameless. And we'll get into those in a second, such as Noah or Job or David or others. But the Bible never intends to mean that that person or persons being described were sinless. Of course not. We all know if we talk about Noah or David or Job, of course they weren't sinless. But rather, what it means is that these individuals were living a consistent pattern of holiness. Third thing I want you to see is that tamim, or being blameless, was not necessarily a permanent designation. So we'll find that David is called blameless, but we know that he sinned with Bathsheba. We know that Job is called blameless, but yet in the very ending of the chapter, God re rebukes him for the words that he's spoken a little bit rashly. So this isn't a permanent designation, calling somebody blameless in the Old Testament. It's referring to them at a specific point of time, the way that they are living. That's our basic definition. So now let's go to the part I was going to share with you, the people who are described as blameless, and you'll see this word in action, and this is where the rubber meets the road. Person number one, we'll talk about Job, and I'm not going to spend a million years on each of these, just a little bit of time on each. So let's go to Job 1.1, very beginning of the book, right? You don't have to go very far. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Okay, let's keep that up on the screen for now. A few observations here. Number one, the word for blameless is, in fact, tam, that word that I was going over with you before, tamim. 
just like we said. Uh, so that's the word we're looking for. Second, we saw just like in Psalm 119, verse 1, in this verse, it's defining the term blameless for us. We don't even need to look it up in a dictionary. We can, it, just look right here. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and this man was blameless and upright. And then if we pause here, we could ask, what does it mean that he was blameless and upright? And the answer is the rest of the verse. One who feared God and turned away from evil. So here, as we've already said, blameless is a term that describes God's assessment of their actions. This is not a term that means um, something, something else, uh, something that doesn't actually refer to what he was living like. He was living blamelessly. God calls him, by virtue of the narration of this book, which is, because it's inspired, the words of God, he is blameless, a declaration of how he was living. And we see just in a few verses later a sampling of what this blameless way looks like. It describes his life. and says, when in, the course, uh, in those days the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, that's his kids, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So it starts off by defining him as blameless, and then it gives us a few verses of description of what that life looked like, proving what it already said. This is a description of his actions. Um, Job offered sacrifices. He feared the Lord. He turned away from the evil. Notice those verbs. He was generous, and he says that later in the book. I've been generous to others, and I think we can trust that. Uh, he, he loved his family. We can see that here in this verse. He lived a godly life. He believed in God. He had faith. He tried to please God. And here is the key. God was pleased with Job for the way he lived. We know that because, again, verse 1 is God speaking about his character. And it's important to, to notice that this is God speaking here because if you go on later through the, through the, the book of Job, you get into this argument with Job and his friends, and there's at times where Job's friends say the wrong thing, and there's even times where Job says the wrong thing, where he says, if only God were here, I would, I would have him answer for what he's done. Job goes a bit too far, and we know that because God rebukes Job at the end. So any time a scholar tries to dissect the middle part of Job as to when those characters are speaking correctly or not, it gets to be a bit of a sticky situation. It's hard to figure out when a person is speaking rightly about God and when they're not. It's, it, you know, scholars and commentaries will debate that. But my point in all that is that the, the beginning of the book is not debatable. It's very plain for us. We can trust it. We can trust the assessment being made. And the same is true for Job 1.8. So if we need a further example, we, we're given it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is, notice this, none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Again, this is God speaking. God is saying of his servant Job, there is none like him on the earth. That has to be describing his actions. It's an assessment of his character. Was Job perfect? No, of course not. And I've already said that, and none of these characters we're going to look at tonight were perfect. Did Job stray from this blamelessness at some point? Sure. Yeah, it doesn't take very long, as we find with all of these characters who are described this way. In the same book or in the same chapter or whatever, you know, they, they stray, and in the end, he's gotten a little cocky. So, 
The point is not that Job is sinless. The point is not that Job couldn't lose this status. But at this particular point in time, at the beginning of the book, he is being described as blameless, an assessment of his character. Let's move on to number two, David. David. And we have several examples in the scripture of where he is called blameless. 2 Samuel 22, 22 through 25. And this whole section elaborates on the same point. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. Again, a description of his actions. And have not wickedly departed from my God, for all his rules were before me. And from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness in his sight. Now, don't read this as some sort of work salvation. It's not. He's not saying I'm saved by my works, or that's you know, why I have a relationship to God in the first place. In fact, we'll see in a later verse that I'm going to put on the screen for you that he says it's only because of God that I'm able to do this at all. God has made me blameless, right? So we recognize, just as we sang this morning, all I have is Christ. Really, without God giving us his grace, enabling us through the Spirit to obey him, we couldn't do this at all, right? So understanding that, though, we see here that once he is saved, now that he is in, in relationship with God, God is pleased with his actions. I was blameless before him, it says. I kept myself from guilt. This God is my strong refuge. This is 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-three, And here's what I was talking about. He has made my way blameless. So David is careful to give God the credit in t- talking about the way he has lived. He's saying, God has given me this ability to be able to live this way. But there's further examples as we're talking about David. And yes, if you look in the beginning of these psalms that I've mentioned, it does in fact say these are written by David. I know there's some that aren't, uh, but this, this one was, and so was the other that I listed. Psalm 18, I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt, so that the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. Why do I get into all this? These words are very different from the prayer that I read from the Valley of Vision in the beginning that said, the more I do, the worse I am. And I want you to see that. There's a stark contrast. Yes, we are sinful to the core. Yes, without God, we wouldn't be saved at all. And yes, we need that grace to be able to be saved and even to do good from that point on. But that does not mean that therefore, at every attempt of our trying to serve God, trying to obey him, trying to worship him, that God is continually displeased and saying, nope, not good enough. Nope, not good enough. We see two examples here already where God is looking down on his servants and saying, that man is blameless. He is living right. He is living in a way that pleases me, that makes me smile. That brings joy to my heart because it means I'm not constantly thinking, I'm just not, I'm not good enough. You know, I I can't measure up. No matter what I do, I know there's some other sin lurking behind. Even in my most generous moments, there's something else wrong with me. That's not, we need scripture to balance scripture. And against the many, many texts, and there's many more about our sinfulness, I want to show you these verses about blamelessness tonight to give us a proper balance. Person number three. And I didn't go in um, chronological order here tonight for a purpose. I wanted to show you how very clearly in the lives of David and Job this word is used. 
to go to Noah now and show how this is the exact same word, meaning the exact same thing. So if we go to Noah, we go to Noah, uh, Genesis 6-9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Again, what I want you to see is not that he was simply declared to be righteous in his generation. He was blameless. Tamim. He lived that way. And I picked this picture. I was looking on the internet for a picture of, of Noah. And of course, you can find tons of them with the boat. But I picked this one for a reason, because you can see, if you can see it clearly enough, there's all these people mocking him, obviously at the idea of building a boat. But he's preaching. He's preaching righteousness. And that's because that's what the Bible tells us. We have two New Testament passages that tell us about his character. 2 Peter 2.5 calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Hebrews 11.7 says that Noah condemned the world. So this is describing what he was really like. He really did live differently from people around him. He really was following God in a way that was unique. And again, we see that from this verse that defines itself. Blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. And when you see walked with God, again, you'll find that in other passages referring to a way of living. Noah lived a certain way. Just to show you that this isn't an Old Testament-only idea, I want to give you just two more examples, and they come from the New Testament, of people being described as blameless. Luke 1, 5 through 7, and we've got Zechariah, not Zechariah, as many say, but Zechariah, and Elizabeth. These are the parents of John the Baptist. And it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly, here it is, in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So notice how that word blameless is connected to those things. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren both while advanced in years. Again, we could say a lot of the same things here. This is God's evaluation of them. It's God's narration of their lives. God viewed them as blameless individuals. Again, not perfect. Not sinless by any means. Just like all the other examples I gave, quickly to fall, uh, Zechariah is. I mean, he immediately in the time he goes in and, and, and God shows his vision, he's, he's made mute because he doesn't believe what God says. So it doesn't last long. And that doesn't mean he's perfect. But generally speaking, he followed the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And the Greek word that's used here is um, amemtos. That's the same one that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, for passages in Psalms that describe David. So in other words, even though the New Testament is written in Greek, and we can't say what Hebrew word is being used here, we can see what Greek word was used, and if that corresponds to tamim, which we've already gone over and yes, it does. It's the same term for blameless. So we're talking about the same thing. Why did I get all into this? Okay, so now we've gone through, we've defined it. We've um, presented examples of where this word was used. And um, here's, here's what I want you to take away from this. I presented this to you because I want you to know that it is possible to live blamelessly in the biblical sense of the word. Now, don't misread what I'm saying. Don't twist what you've heard tonight not saying you can live perfectly. The Bible doesn't say that. 
I'm not saying that it's a permanent way, that once you've achieved it, you're there for life. Probably as soon as you've achieved it, then pride creeps in and it's gone. Okay? I'm not saying any of those things. But I am saying it's possible. And we know that because there are five individuals who are described being that way, and we have this verse that we keep coming back to that calls us to it. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the way of the Lord. So we should strive to be blameless is what I'm trying to get at. It's something that we can achieve. And it matters a great deal mentally, spiritually, because it means we don't need to think that for every time we try to serve God with our whole heart, we are just destined to fail. That as that prayer said, the more I try, the worse I become. We don't need to necessarily think that way. Again, there, you know your own heart. Okay, there could be times where you need to hear a rebuke. Maybe there's a time where you need to hear how sinful you are or where you're using something on the outside to cover up dark motives on the inside. You know your own heart, okay? But I'm saying it doesn't always have to be that way. And we're not destined to think that that's the only way God thinks of us. We've seen over and over again in these passages that God has viewed individuals of the past living rightly as blameless. I want you to know, secondly, that it's possible for God to be happy with us. We're not destined to beat up ourselves over and over, viewing every act of obedience as insufficient. It is possible to actually please God by our obedience. And again, I'm not talking about being saved by our works. I'm not saying that we can be perfect. But I am saying that as believers, with the Spirit of God in our hearts, with God giving us the ability to love and serve Him, that it is possible to make God glad. It's possible to make God smile. I tell you, these individuals we've talked about already did. Job, Noah, David, we can tell because the Bible assesses them as such. And that's wonderful news. That's wonderful news. Because there are times when we need to be reminded of that, that God is a God of love. Also, we talk about God, there's that balance to maintain, right, of, of wrath and love. And the world so often swings the pendulum to the love side, to the expense of the wrath. And I don't want to do that. But I also don't want us to so take the sinful side of things, to have this thought that God doesn't view us in any kind of positive way at all, or that we can't. I don't have this one up on the screen, but I just want to read it to you in closing and perhaps offer a different take on a familiar verse. In light of everything that we've said about the word blameless, listen to Jude 24, 25. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. We've often read this passage, I think, with heaven in mind, and we so should. Um, we say, ultimately, in heaven, we'll be blameless. When it says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory. Ultimately, I'd say, yes, the, the fulfillment of that verse is in glory. When we will be made perfectly blameless, perfectly sinless, and we look forward to that. But what if, in light of everything we've learned about this word blameless tonight, these verses also have another layer of meaning for us? What if this verse is just about as much about sanctification 
as it is about glorification. If so, then not only can we look forward to a time in heaven when we will be made perfect, but also we can have hope that our God is able to sanctify us here on earth to such a degree that even in this life, he is able to make us blameless in the way that we've talked about already. Again, not sinless, not perfect, but better than we are now. Holy, changed, sanctified to him who is able to present us that way. That gives me hope because it means I don't have to just assume that I'm going to keep on struggling with the same sins over and over until I die. And then, you know, someday God will finally make me perfect the way I'm supposed to be. Of course I have that that hope, and we all do. But we don't have to just sit back and wait until that time and say, you know what, it's a hopeless act. I'm not going to ever get anywhere close to that in this life. I'm just waiting for that time when God's going to make me perfect. And then when that time comes, then I'll be satisfied. Rather, I think this passage gives me hope because it reminds me that despite how sinful I am, God's not done working with me in this life. I won't be sinlessly perfect in this life, but God is sanctifying me every day, Lord willing, by his grace. If I follow him every day as I should, then maybe, just maybe, at the end of my life, I might be able to say with David, quote, the Lord has made my way blameless. If I follow God as I ought, I might be able to look back on my life with satisfaction and not regret. I might be able to look back knowing that I have brought God joy, that I have brought a smile to God's face and made him happy. May we never be trapped in an endless cycle of despair, but may we be overjoyed by a God who has shown us in the scriptures what it is like to live blamelessly. And with that knowledge, may we seek to bring a smile to his face following him every day with our entire being. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would make us blameless, not sinless, not proud, not thinking we have everything together, but God, in the, in the sense that Job and David were able to say it, that you were able to say it of them, that David was able to say it of himself, God, may we have moments in our life where we are finally getting it, where we're finally understanding the worship you deserve, where we're finally taking your law seriously, living the way we ought, and may we be able to be satisfied in that. May we know that you are not constantly disappointed in us. May we find times where we rejoice in your joy. May we see ourselves as creatures who on one hand continually need sanctification and improvement and forgiveness day by day. And yet, God, in times where you have impressed upon us the need to obey and we follow, God, may we take pleasure in your pleasure. God, may you help us to strike that balance and help you to understand your word rightly. And we thank you for this word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.